Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Matthew Loveridge and it's another road tech one today. I'm joined by Simon Bromley, who's been testing quite a number of aero road bikes recently, including the Cannondale System 6, the Felt AR, Scott Foil and the Vetus ZX1 Evo. Aero road bikes were all the rage a few years ago, but recently there's been a bit of a resurgence in kind of lightweight all-rounders that aren't explicitly focused on aerodynamics. Simon, how does that make you feel? Well, as you may know, I'm dead set against that. I think uh, a lot of brands, I think, are pandering to the kind of uh, world tour weight weenie aesthetic and they're kind of watering down their fastest bikes just to shave you know 300 500 grams off them and so yeah i was testing more kind of traditional aero road bikes which uh, focused really heavily on aerodynamics at the kind of expensive weight so most of them weighed around eight kilos and um, you know we'll maybe get on to a bit more detail about that later but it was a really good experience yeah i had a lot of fun before we get into specifics of what you've learned from your testing, we should probably talk a bit generally about sort of give some consumer advice about aero bikes here. <laughs> so who are aero bikes for? So I would say aero, aero road bikes are kind of for your traditional road cyclist. You know, they're not for the kind of person who wants to take a bit of gravel roads it, it's mainly obviously you know they are really aimed at, at racing but you know i don't really do any road racing anymore and i still really enjoy aero road bikes so the kind of the thing they offer is that they're they're fast right they come with kind of well they should you know hopefully come with an aerodynamic frame set aerodynamic wheels aerodynamic components and all of those things help you kind of go faster for the same effort so if you like going fast then you should be looking at getting an aero road bike so you like going fast regardless of whether you're actually competing. And and I think that actually goes to the heart of the, the discussion that we have back and forth about, like, does weight matter more? Does error matter more? Now, I know you're going to accuse me of being a, a weight weenie. I think that's fair to say. Um, <laughs> and historically, I would say that's probably accurate. And I've generally tended to say that I cared more about weight because you can feel weight. Um, whereas I think you would argue slightly differently on that one. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just, I've, I know that's a kind of a trope that people say you can't feel aero, but you can feel weight. And I, and I just don't really, I don't really know if that's true. I think the kind of bigger determinants of how a bike feels comes down to, comes down to other things really kind of like, you know, how good your tires are, the kind of the steepness of the head tube angle and, you know, all, all of those sorts of things. And, um, and I and I just think people still, even to this day, like they still put too much emphasis on on weight above other things. And I'm not saying it doesn't make any difference, you know, body weight in particular, you know, that that can make a big difference because you you know some people potentially might be able to lose a significant amount of weight, which would would make you ride faster uphill. But when we're talking about bike weight, we're usually only talking about 500 grams here or there you know, very, very rarely we might be talking about a kilo difference here or there. So it's kind of the very insignificant amounts of weights that I think if we really tested it blind, I'm not entirely convinced 
most people would be able to tell the difference. It's fair to say that buying an aero road bike now isn't really the compromise that it once was, is it? Yeah, I, w- I would. Yeah, I think that that's you know, aero road bikes kind of used to be extremely focused, and if you didn't race, then the compromises that they came with made them quite poor to live with because you know they had they tended to have very very stiff frames, which meant they were ungodly uncomfortable on the kind of you know typical roads we have in the uk and then compounding that they wouldn't often have you know very good tire clearances uh they'd also typically have uh integrated rim brakes which varied significant in quality (laughs) i think it's fair to say and um and you know aero wheels as well used to be very kind of flat-sided and would often be quite uncomfortable to handle in the wind so if you didn't race, then that speed certainly came with quite a few compromises for the kind of average user. Those last couple of points were, I think, particular bugbears of mine. So uh, taking the brakes as an example, a lot of them would have a rim brake caliper tucked underneath the chainstay, which meant that it was less accessible for maintenance and, more importantly, incredibly prone to rub because you get more wheel flex at that point and so even quite a stiff wheel could quite easily rub your brake box. And in fact, the relationship between rim stiffness and frame stiffness is kind of complicated anyway. Uh, and I remember, for example, I tested when the, I guess it was the newer generation. So the second generation of Scott Foil had a brake like that. And it was a really cool bike. It was actually relatively comfortable, probably more so than the original Scott Foil, but it was cursed with terrible brake rub when you go out of the saddle and, you know, I weigh 53 kilos. Shouldn't really get brake rub, should you? Yeah, and I, to- and I totally agree with that. I-, I think, you know, for a long time, the- you know, the Canyon Air Road was the one that didn't have that kind of compromise that it had direct mount rim brakes just on the front of the fork and uh, in the normal place on the-, on the seat stays. And I think that was a very popular design. But like you say, too many... Too many brands uh, in the search of a kind of, you know, one watt of aero gain would compromise your braking. And to me, it doesn't make sense because, you know, better braking makes you go faster. You know, you can brake later with more confidence and all those sorts of things. And I think you end up going faster overall. But yeah, that that used to be a, a big issue. And, you know, even on the first generation giant propels, for example, they use those kind of integrated V-brakes. Now, I've heard some people say those were very good. But anything that's kind of non-standard is always going to make me feel a bit queasy and uneasy. So yeah, I, I, I can't, I'm not going to argue against that one. <laughs> so Simon, in the course of your testing, you've come away with a few, let's call them learnings, from uh, the experience of riding a bunch of very kind of cutting edge modern era road bikes. So should we run through those? Um, hit me with your first one. Yeah, so my first one was that, and and this is kind of, you know, it's almost a rebuttal to an article uh, that you wrote a few years ago on BikeRadar.com called Aero is Bung, Brackets, Unless You're Racing. And, um, and, and And I can kind of see where you were coming from, but I think going fast is fun. And I think, you know, going fast is kind of one of the primary reasons we're all riding bikes rather than, say, you know, going for a run or going for a walk. And so... I think without those kind of compromises, 
that we talked about earlier of, you know, kind of naff brakes, wheels that you can't handle, uncomfortable bikes. Once you kind of get rid of all of those things, then actually going fast is just more fun than kind of going slow. And so, yeah, I think aero road bikes really lean into that. Whereas lightweight bikes for me don't quite hit that note. The point that I made back then when I said lighter bikes are always more fun is that it is so tangible weight. And even the most unfit, unskilled rider, given the choice of a light, very light bike or a heavy one, will feel faster on the lightweight one when they are for example standing out of the saddle trying to ride up a big hill and for me that's always been such an important part of riding a road bike it's one of the reasons that even though i love gravel bikes and i love more versatile kind of genre blurring stuff i still there'll always still be a place in my heart for like a really light skinny tired road bike because it's such a pure form of riding and if an aero bike means compromising on that, that's less acceptable. However, I recently tested the cheapest Merida Reacto. The Reacto is that their aero bike that competes with like the Giant Propel and all the others. And it's fully in the mold of a modern aero road bike. It's got proper aero features throughout. It's got disc brakes. It's got some integration, but it's not too extreme. And honestly, I really liked it. And it kind of surprised me because it's still a great all-rounder it's not really uncomfortable um it's got excellent braking and good tire clearances so more versatile than a traditional aero road bike but it's just very very good at what it does and it kind of it did make me a little bit rethink some of my prejudices um and i i pitted it against giants rim brake non-aero tcr which is another bike i really really like and that kind of represents my more you know, the bikes that I naturally cleave towards. But I really had to think hard about which one I would personally choose, even though the Merida is significantly heavier. I know you tested the Reacto as well. You were a big fan of that bike, weren't you? That Although this wasn't part of your more recent test. No, that wasn't. that's right. That's an earlier test that I'd done. Um, might have even been last year now. But yeah, I, I really like that bike too. And I think it, it kind of handled excellently. And it was very cheap as well for the kind of spec that you get, which is, you know, astonishing in the kind of current market. But um, I think I get, you know, the one place it kind of fell down, it kind of had average wheels and tires, which I guess that's where the kind of cost savings were made. But I think with a set of, you know, race wheels, that that bike would have felt really, really fast. And, and I, you know, I particularly liked the way it handled. I felt it felt quite nippy in the corners, but it wasn't, wasn't unpredictable and all of those things and yeah I just I just really got on with it and I like the fact that it kind of again we'll come on this is another one of my points but I like the I like the way that they had done integration at the front end um so yeah it's it's a really good bike but I'm I you know I'm with you on it as well with the kind of the rim brake TCR you know I actually own a rim brake TCR and um it's a really nice bike and yeah like there's something you know, there's still something. I think, like you said in your uh, in your comparison of those two bikes, uh, with, there's an excellent video on Bike Radar's YouTube channel which you should watch if you've not seen it. But um, there is something very nice about the simplicity of the rim brake TCR and and other bikes like it. And you know that I know that I can, you know, maintain everything on that bike myself. Whereas if I was to buy, you know, a fancy aero bike with hydraulic disc brakes and integrated cables and all of those sorts of things, I would be very much out of my depth mechanically. Yeah, that, that's a point that will scare a lot of amateurs off 
more complicated drawings, I think, because, yeah, there's no question they're just more complicated. Um, let's go on to the next one. Uh, now, we talked about this a little bit already. You've said, if you care about speed, bike weight doesn't really matter. Hit me with some numbers. Yeah, I mean, so again, I know this is, we're flogging a dead horse with this one, and I, but I still get the comments, um, you know, when we, whenever we do a kind of article focused on aerodynamics or something, time trialing or something, you know, racing related, we still get the comments that weight, you know, really does matter and it's so important. But if you kind of go on to a power versus speed calculator for cycling, of which there are many online, and they basically, you know, you allow you to put in a kind of rider weight, a bike weight, a speed you want to travel, a gradient, you know, all of these figures, and they'll, they'll spit out the numbers for how much power is required to ride at a given speed on a given gradient. Now, for a kind of typical 70 kilo cyclist traveling at 30 kilometers an hour, the difference in power required to overcome a two kilogram weight difference. So for example, you know, an eight kilo bike and a ultra light six kilo bike, it's, you know, it's less than a watt. If, <laughs> you know, when, on a flat road, it just, it literally makes no difference. That, I, I, yeah, that's remarkable. That's obviously talking about just traveling at steady speed, isn't it? Yes, it is. So that doesn't necessarily account for acceleration, but I've never seen any good data to suggest that acceleration really makes a big difference either because, you know, and if you think about it, you know, we're not really accelerating very fast. <laughs> so, you know, bicycles slow down and accelerate at very slow rates. And so even then, I'm not really convinced it makes a big difference. You know, wheel rotating weight is often said to make a huge difference. And again, like I've never seen any data that, that says it does. Yeah. Again, it might be one of those things that, I mean, there's quite a strong element of placebo with these things. I don't think there's much question. Um, I've tested a lot of different wheels and some of them certainly feel different to others, but whether to what degree that's psychological and to what degree it actually impacts my ultimate speed is very, very questionable. Uh, what about, so we were just talking about being on a flat road there. On a hill, obviously weight must make more of a difference, right? So it does make slightly more of a difference. Um, but even I was sort of surprised at how little difference it makes according to these kind of calculators. So on a 10% hill, if you wanted to travel, you know, the same 70 kilo cyclist, if you're traveling a pretty brisk 15 kilometers an hour, which is quite fast for a 10% hill, I suppose. Actually, is it? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, but you know, 15 kilometers that sounds, an hour. That sounds reasonably <laughs> quick. I mean, that, that's almost yeah. 10 miles an hour. So that's true. Yeah. So so that that apparently requires our sort of typical 70 kilo cyclist to put out around 350 watts or something. So I guess, you know, I mean, that is, that's more than I can do for very long. So. Um, but two kilograms there will only save you around nine watts. So, and, and that's like you say, that's steady state. So you're saving that as long as you're traveling at 15 kilometers an hour on that 10% hill, you're saving nine watts. But it's, but it's not as much as, you know, as you might hope for. And, you know, saving two kilograms on a bike... <laughs> I think is quite unrealistic. I think actually you're probably more likely to save a quarter of that. So, you know, you can actually really divide that nine watts by four. And really, if you if you were to shave 500 grams off your bike, it would cost you a lot. And if you're only saving, you know, two and a half watts. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't really stack up, does it? And of course, when you are taking weight off a bike, like it, particularly if you start with something that's not that light, 
it's incredibly uneconomical and diminishing returns really set in. Like you could spend like pounds per gram quite easily, couldn't you? Yeah, lightweight tech. I mean, that's that. I think you know that's that's one of the things that really annoys me about uh, weight weenie stuff as well is that it's just so expensive and and I'm kind of convinced that it makes no difference. Now, of course, of course if you just like weight weenie stuff because you think it's cool, that's absolutely fine and all power to you. And I don't want to you know say tell anyone what they should or shouldn't spend their money on. It's just that they kind of sell it as uh, you know that these things will make you faster when there doesn't appear to be any evidence to back that up. Um, and, you know, if you're going on certain routes of doing it, if you're, say, you know, you're swapping out your kind of uh, clincher wheels and tyres for tubular, uh, tubular wheels and tyres, then actually that might slow you down because tubular wheels and tyres tend to exhibit more rolling resistance than equivalent clinchers. So <laughs> it might be lighter, but if you, if you lose more than those watts that you've gained from weight in rolling resistance, then it really doesn't add up and you won't be faster. So why are people not riding full time trial rigs in hill climbs, Simon Bromley? <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously there are some hill climbs where people do run full time trial setups. And, you know, if I would say the fitter you are, the faster you're going, the more aerodynamics make a difference, the more likely it should be that you probably should run a full time trial setup. I mean, there was a recent mountain time trial at the Tour de Suisse where the winner did ride a full time trial bike, even though they went over a mountain and down the other side. So obviously, yeah, I think in a hill climb, when you're only going uphill, especially in the UK, they tend to be on quite steep roads. So and very short like explosive mostly out of the saddle type efforts aren't they yeah and, and so you don't have that flat section or the downhill section where the aerodynamics would outweigh any time lost say you know any small amounts of time lost on the climb weight does matter when you're going uphill there's no denying that you know if, if i'm 63 64 kilos whatever i am at the moment and i'm climbing next to someone who's 83 84 kilos obviously that heavier rider will have to put out a lot more than me in terms of power it's just that you can't make 20 kilograms difference on a bike <laughs> so it, it, it's not that weight doesn't matter at all it's more that when we're talking about bike weight it's not as the differences are not as significant because we can't drop that much weight yep good point um i know that if you mention this topic on certain bike forums uh, as in like how do I save so and so much weight off my bike some wag will inevitably chime in and say oh just go for a poo before you ride but that's not actually the worst advice in the world is it no it's not it's not at all I mean you know the easiest way to save 500 grams off your bike is to just not take a water bottle yeah but we do recommend generally that you do take a water bottle on bike rides yeah yeah but not you know if you're racing and your race is underneath an hour hour long you know maybe down that 500 milliliters of water before you start and then don't take the bottle you don't need it although you know, technically you are still carrying drag. it then because it's in your body no i know but you're not having the aero drag on your frame <laughs> true yes okay no fair point uh let's go on to the next one um and this is one that matters to me quite a lot You've said deep section wheels are surprisingly easy to live with now. Why is that? Yeah, and I think this was one of the things that I was a little bit concerned about because uh, like you, I'm you know, pretty thin, pretty kind of 
lightweight and um and i was a little bit worried that say some of the bikes so the cannondale system six for example comes with uh, a set of cannondale not wheels which are which have 64 millimeter deep rims and obviously it can get it can be windy sometimes <laughs> you know we've all been out for, for for windy rides and and i was quite worried that these bikes were going to be really tough to handle on uh windy days but it actually just it wasn't really the case and i actually found myself you know really liking how the fast the, the kind of deeper wheels felt in terms of the way you know when you're kind of rolling along on the flat they do hold speed very nicely or at least that's the perception and um and yeah like you can feel the kind of pressure of the wind on the rim on a windy day but it's never enough to it never felt enough to blow me off the road or make me feel like I hadn't taken the uh, deep section wheels with me. And there was another illustration when I rode a time trial on a wet and windy evening and I used a 85 mil front wheel, which you know, I would never have done five years ago. But actually it was handling it was absolutely fine. But where, where it was different is that on my time trial bike with that 85 mil rim it's a carbon clincher with rim brakes and the braking was absolutely horrifying having you know having only really ridden hydraulic disc brakes for the last year or so since i've been at bike radar the braking using carbon swiss stop carbon pads on you know a carbon rim it was terrifying and i had to sit up so early for corners because you know there's that few seconds where you just grab the, the brakes and nothing really happens whereas for this latest generation of aero bikes I was testing, they all had hydraulic disc brakes and the braking was just so consistent and so good in all, in all weathers that it made it such a more pleasant experience. And, you know, I know we have this kind of rim brakes versus disc brakes thing all the time. And, and I don't want to kind of reignite that. This is more a kind of question of braking on aluminium surfaces versus carbon. Because obviously, you know, if you had rim brakes, you could get a set of head jet wheels, which have kind of aluminium rim and a carbon fairing and I think those would be a fantastic option and actually if I was buying a set of uh, aero wheels for a rim brake bike I would 100% have those. I think that's a really good point about the braking thing because um, you can talk about braking power and stuff and modulation and argue till the cows can come home about what the best technology is but it's it's if anything the side effects of disc brakes that are more significant um, and when I got into cycling the goal all roadies wanted deep section carbon wheels, basically because they look and sound amazing. And one of the best things is when you put a new set of carbon wheels on a bike and you get that cool whooshing noise when you sprint and it just feels so pro. But like you say, back in the day, that came with a side order of really terrible braking in the wet in particular. And also with carbon clinches, there was always that kind of underlying thing of like, am I going to overheat my rim? because the heat dissipation of carbon rims when you're braking on them isn't necessarily great. Obviously, some are a lot better than others, but some people did actually succeed in delaminating their rims, which is really dangerous. Uh, and of course, none of that applies with disc brakes, so that's great. So I think that's that's really significant, and it kind of does change the proposition with aerobikes. Also, personally, I think deep section wheels um, that are like an alloy rim with a fairing. They never look that good, do they? Really? <laughs> I don't know. I like, you know, I think I know what you mean, and they don't look as good as full carbon 
wheels, but for the for the better braking and considering that you know i'm t- you know I'm, I'm a believer that the extra weight of the aluminium rim doesn't bother me so i would rather have the better braking and i think head head and mavic both do kind of black alloy rims now don't they so you could get i'm sure you might have to pay a bit more for it but if you if that really bothered you and i know it this doesn't quite look as good but um in performance terms, it would be better. So I'd buy it. My experience is also that loads of manufacturers have tried different ways to make brake tracks black rather than silver, and none of them are that good. They all have compromises, like Mavic's Exolith, that it could wear out, but also it made terrible sounds. Uh, most of the coatings just wear off over time. So like you get anodized rims, and the anode will be gone the first time you ride in the rain. <laughs> Um, there are ceramic ones that are slightly more durable, but even them generally suffer pretty badly in the wet. So again, it's kind of a compromise. If you want that all black look, disc brakes are kind of your friend. Um, going back to the aerodynamics and, and like handling thing, that's been really significant for me as well, because I weigh 53 kilos and I used to be quite scared of deep sections because I've ridden like old style, totally slab-sided rims. Because it used to be that the kind of default deep section carbon was like a 50 millimeter v section rim with completely flat sides and they really were pretty bad in side winds and it was the kind of thing where if you were riding along a typical british road where you've got a hedgerow and then you'd have a gap for a gate when you went past the gap you'd get shot sideways and at my weight like you could get blown halfway across the road that's not an exaggeration and so it just meant that i would not choose to ride wheels like that it's just not worth it for me and i used to live in scotland where very high winds are not in any way unusual it was quite common to get days where it was 20 miles an hour steady gusting up to like 40 or even 50 miles an hour and it was just like dangerous so i very much welcome the new rim sections i don't know if i'd go as deep as you um, but I think for everyday use, I'd happily ride a modern 40 or 50 millimeter rim because they are that much better than they used to be. Yeah, it's, it's a really tricky one. And I, and I was thinking now, you know, what if I was buying a kind of a wheel set, what would I get? And I, and I think I would be leaning towards a 60, which seems crazy because, you know, I, like, like, like you say, I would never have done that for every day you know it would have been nice to have that on a time trial bike for sure but i i would never have done that uh five or ten years ago it would have like because yeah on those on those windy days when the wind really picks up it's kind of like you say it's like it's dangerous especially if you're riding a group and you're even just on your own like it, it it would feel disconcerting if it wasn't actually dangerous so but I think so much has changed now when we we have kind of blunt V or kind of even U-shaped rims. And with all of the bikes I tested, which had a kind of range of Reynolds wheels, uh, Cannondale's own wheels, and then a, a Sir or Syncross, Syncross wheels uh, on the Scott foil. And, but all of them performed, you know, fantastically well in crosswinds. And there wasn't any of them that I f- went out on and thought, oh, you know, it would have been nice to have a lower profile set of wheels on, on these bikes. And, um, and I found that really striking because I think that's, that's, that's a big, that's a big change. Yeah, I agree. I I guess the only qualification I'd give to that is that obviously we are talking about quite expensive wheels. 
um, and carbon wheels, if you are upgrading an existing bike, then buying a really expensive set of carbon wheels isn't necessarily the best value way to do it, is it? I mean, would that be the first place you'd look for aero gains, for example? Um, I, if if I wanted, if I had a kind of, you know, if I had a standard road bike and a standard set of bibs and shorts, the wheels, no, wouldn't be the first thing I would look for, just because, like you say, carbon wheels can be very expensive and whilst they you know the aerodynamics of carbon wheels they will make you kind of go uh, go faster it's not going to be the biggest gain in the world in terms of pounds per watt saved and you know your money is always going to be better spent on things like uh, fast tires and you know, fast clothing really you know if you, you know in in, ter- in terms of aero your body is is the big problem or just, <laughs> or just fit narrow handlebars which i know is one yeah. of your hobby horses as well yeah exactly yeah so body position uh clothing those sorts of things are always the places i would look first and wheels are kind of like the cherry on the icing on top of the cake really like they definitely make a difference and they're worth having and but only once you've kind of you know if you're riding a kind of yeah, my giant TCR has a has a rectangular down tube because it's a 2009 model. <laughs> and so, you know, there's only so much that a set of aero wheels is going to be doing to a bike like that. Like, the, yes, the, the airflow might go nicely over the front wheel, but then as soon as it hits that, you know, 10 centimeter wide rectangular down tube, that's a bit of a, a brick in the wind. So, it, you know, my money on that bike is better spent on body position, clothing, tires, that sort of thing. And, you know. Back in 2009, the review would have described that as a beefy down tube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I've, you know, it reviewed very well. And it is a nice bike and, you know, aerodynamics whilst uh, you know, are very important to going fast, like it, that, you know, that does make for an incredibly stiff and snappy responsive bike. So it feels great even if it's, you know, arguably not as fast as you know a, a bike with a skinnier aero formed down tube let's talk about integration which was your next point um so the trend in aero road bikes has been to ever greater levels of integration i think it's fair to say we've seen like particularly at the kind of super bike end of the spectrum some manufacturers moving to really, really proprietary setups where the entire cockpit and headset is kind of non-standard because of the way they're routing cables internally. Um, and there have been maybe less common attempts to hide brakes and things. How do you feel about the, the state of integration now? So it might surprise uh, a lot of people to learn that actually I find that kind of ever-increasing level of integration uh, really frustrating and I don't personally think it's worth it for the majority of consumers. It's obviously for the Tour de France cyclist chasing every last watt. You know, if it's if it's difficult to set up, that's not a problem. You know, they can also request a kind of stem and handlebar length or width in whatever they want, and the brand will will kind of you know make it to to fit them. But for the consumer. I find that the kind of current trend for proprietary parts and complete integration at the front end a real like a real negative because you know I, I'm someone who really likes to customize 
uh, bikes and particularly fr- the front end of bikes. You know, I like very narrow handlebars. You know, I tend to run a slightly longer stem, so I've got quite a long torso. And and if you if the if the bike comes with an integrated handlebar that you can't swap for something else, that's just not an option. And I find it really frustrating because, yeah, integrating the cables into the handlebar is going to save. I think Canyon said it saves around three watts when they launched the latest Air Road. And that, you know, three watts is nice to have, but it's not game-changing. And a much bigger gain is possible to come from optimising your body position on the bike. But if you can't optimise your body position because you can't swap the stem length or the handlebar width, you know, you're going to be losing a lot more than three watts. And so I find it a really frustrating thing that brands do because and I, and I think the reason for it is is that often these bikes are kind of tested alone in the wind tunnel without kind of taking the rider into into consideration and then in that situation yeah an integrated handlebar there's no compromises if you don't have a rider present and so that is the fastest setup when you're testing it like that but then as soon as you kind of put the bike in the real world and there's a rider involved then you know, you're kind of thinking about the possibilities of optimizing for having a rider and all of a sudden the, you know, things have changed. And so, yeah, I, I don't, I, I feel like the trend is, is going to carry on going towards ever more, ever greater integration, but I really, I'm not, I'm not in favor of it. I, I'm with you on that one. And I think particularly I do not like one piece cockpits because there are ways to do integration um, for example, that Reacto, it uses FSA's, uh, I think it's called the SMR stem, which is basically a normal stem, but it has cable routing along its underside, which is under a sort of cover that's quite easy to remove. And that, I think, is a nice compromise because you've got the convenience of a separate stem, so you can change the stem length without changing the whole cockpit. I think some brands do a better job of this than others. Uh, the Merida Reacto that we mentioned earlier was a good example of that because it uses FSA's SMR cable routing system, which I think is a pretty good trade-off. I mean, do, do you would you be happy with that level of integration? Because it produces a really clean cockpit, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And I think that's the kind of that's my limit for integration as well. And I think it's a similar to what you see on, say, the, the specialized tarmac or the kind of the Venge for it, RIP. But um, yeah, I think that for me, that that kind of is the right compromise between aerodynamics and adjustability. And obviously the cables still route through the handlebar and into the head tube. So it's kind of, you know, it might be difficult to swap a handlebar at home, but you do have the option and and if you don't have the mechanical skills to do it yourself you could take it to a bike shop and swap it out for essentially you know on the merida you could swap it out for any normal handlebar and whatever length of stem you wanted providing you know you can kind of get hold of it and which is great and i really want that choice i think aerodynamics and adjustability go hand in hand you know then i think whereas too many brands see them as kind of trade-offs you know you can have increased aerodynamics by having a fully integrated handlebar or you can have nothing (laughs) and have just total adjustability but actually if you're looking at the a full aerodynamics package you have to have adjustability and that's why time trial bikes are you know adjustability on a time trial bike is absolutely key because we know that it's your body that's the big problem and so it should be the same for aero road bikes as well and i and i and i know that 
you know, fully integrated handlebars, they look really cool in photos and on paper, but they're not going to be fast if you can't adjust them to get your body position in the fastest position possible. Yeah, I'm definitely with you on that. Um, that kind of brings us on quite neatly, actually, to the final point, uh, which is about component sizing and like the specs that bike manufacturers actually give you. Because we're used to the idea, like, most of the bikes we test are fixed spec. Um, so you choose your size and you get given a bike with certain width handlebars, certain length cranks, you know, other parameters are all fixed, certain length stem and often does seem like it's not ideal i think you would say yeah i think what i would like to challenge is this is just the kind of established norms around what we do with with road bikes and particularly with aero road bikes because obviously aero road bikes are leaning into this kind of going fast thing and all of this money is being spent on frame shaping development and wheel development and all you know all of these other things that cfd testing wind tunnel time scientists experts but i think we're missing low hanging fruit of simply specking a slightly narrower handlebar you know and maybe even specking slightly shorter cranks so that when you're in the aero position your knees don't come up to your chest and you can pedal in a kind of more, more aggressive position more comfortably and so you know i would always at, at the moment I would always run a bar that's around 36 centimeters, but you won't find that stock on any road bike unless it's a kind of extra, extra small. And you know, for reference for, for our listeners, I'm six foot tall. I'm not very broad, but I'm six foot tall. And, you know, according to uh, Javier Disley of AeroCoach, you'll save around two watts at 45 kilometers per hour for every kind of 10 millimeters narrower you go. So if I swap from a 42, which would be you know, standard on the kind of size, size 56 bike that I would ride down to a 36, that's around a 12 watt saving. And actually, you, you know, if you really wanted to push it, you could go even narrower. And, I, and I'm at, actually at the moment, I'm testing a set of handlebars that measure 27 centimeters <laughs> or narrower. So it's maybe even 25 at the hoods. And, and, you know, like, I don't think I would want them for everything, but actually like, for most things, that they they feel fine. I've been riding them for a few weeks now, and they're fine. They do look absolutely hilarious, <laughs> though, don't they? Yeah, they do. They look they look they look very very narrow, and they look a bit ridiculous. But you know, I think it's like one of those things. It just it looks so extreme because we're so used to the idea that forty two is is the standard. And you know, I, even when I posted the, the pictures of the bars on Instagram, people said to me things like, "You know, your your bar width should match your shoulder width." But there's just no evidence for it. And obviously in mountain biking, no one thinks that, you know, in mountain biking, everyone's riding really wide bars. So it, I just, I feel like mountain bikers, you know, I don't really know much about mountain biking, but whenever I talk to our colleagues and listen to our podcasts about mountain biking, they always seem to be very progressive with frame geometries, component sizes, all of these things. Whereas for road bikes, all of that stuff has apparently been decided yeah, we're incredibly <laughs> hidebound by convention. I mean, another example is that for years, people used to talk about like knee over pedal spindle or cops as being like the rule of thumb for bike fit. But it is literally, it was just a rule of thumb. There's no actual scientific evidence that says like that is the correct place to be on a road bike. And and that seems to apply across the board. Um, you mentioned crank length. We did 
talk about this in a in a previous podcast, which you should go back and listen to. And Simon wrote an excellent article on the subject. But it's just become convention that a medium-sized road bike has 172.5 millimeter cranks, but nobody really seems to have any evidence to prove like why that's the optimum length. It's just the convention. Yeah, and and it you know we have seen some brands kind of taking baby steps in this direction. So Cannondale, for example, the handlebar on the System Six is kind of a couple of centimeters narrower at the hoods and then flares out slightly. So a large bike, instead of coming with a 42, comes with a 40 handlebar and that flares out to 42 at the drops. And with the Canyon Air Road, for example, that comes with an adjustable handlebar that you can switch between 42, 40 and 38 on a kind of, again, on a size large. Or, But I would really like you know one i would really like brands to offer the option to choose whatever you want i don't necessarily want to say that everyone should be riding 36 centimeter handlebars but i do think brands should offer you the choice but if failing that i would just prefer it if they would be a bit braver and and chop more off the handlebars because honestly i don't think it makes you know swapping from a between you know i I ride different width handlebars all the time now you know we recently had a a bike that had 46 centimeter handlebars, but I quite happily chop between those and 36 centimeter handlebars. And then even down to these kind of, you know, ludicrous track handlebars that I've got on my bike at the moment. And the handling just, it doesn't really change that much. So I don't think it makes as big a difference to the kind of handling as people seem to assume that it does. I mean, do you not think there's any disadvantage like when you're climbing out of the saddle, for example? So on the super narrow bars, it doesn't feel as good when you're climbing out the saddle. You do have to, you have to use your arm strength a bit more to stabilize the bike. There is, you know, the bike, as obviously when the bike, hand, when the handlebars turn, you know, the bike wants to kind of tip a little bit and it requires slightly more concentration. But actually, it's not as big a deal as I thought, even with kind of, like I say, 26, 27 centimeter wide handlebars. With 36 centimeter wide handlebars, it's, it's basically no difference at all. And, and I can't, I can't, you know, I, there's, there's no reason for me to ever ride anything wider than 40 on a road bike. And even with 40, I'd still be thinking I'd probably rather be riding a 36. So I think if I was descending off of a mountain pass in the wind, I probably wouldn't want 30 centimeter wide handlebars, but would I want 42s? Like, no. I, so yeah, I, I just think the differences are kind of overplayed in terms of handling because when you're riding a road bike, when you're at speed, you, you tend to steer by leaning rather than turning the mm-hmm. handlebars. And I think that's, that's why it doesn't make as much difference as you might kind of think it would on paper. And we do tend to adapt very quickly as well. Because I know people used to make a big deal about stem length. And that this is kind of a vault because it used to be that like serious roadies invariably had like 120 mil or 130 stem. And they'd be like, oh, can't, can't go less than 100. It just becomes twitchy. It's like, doesn't, I mean, you can ride a road bike with a 50 millimeter stem and it, it'll be fine. You'll just, you'll get used to it. It'll be different. But humans are really good at adapting to that kind of thing. And you can, across a huge range, I mean, like the bike might not be designed to work well with that super short stem, but it will, it will work. 
Yeah, I think that adaptability thing is really important because, yeah, when I put when I put super narrow handlebars on my road bike for the first time, in those kind of first few pedal strokes, it does feel very different. You're like, oh god, this is <laughs> this is really narrow. Like this is a bit ridiculous. But then you kind of you know, five or ten minutes into your ride you're used to it and then it feels normal. And I think, and, and I find going back to really, you know, kind of normal handlebars, they feel now ridiculously wide. So I think, as you say, it's kind of really, it's more about what you could potentially get used to. And if you're riding an aero bike and, you know, you're, you're kind of doing, you're, you're kind of looking for all of those marginal gains to go a bit faster, then I, ca- I can't see why you wouldn't want a narrower handlebar it's about it, it yeah, just, it's about easy wins again, isn't it? It's like you're spending thousands of pounds on a fancy aero bike, but then you're not taking the easy win. Before we wrap things up, I'm going to put you on the spot. First of all, if I just handed you £3,000 now, would you buy an aero bike and what would you get? Well, I wouldn't have much choice in the current market for anything. <laughs> that's, <laughs> for anything why I, that's why pounds. I made it 3000 because I know that actually... There isn't much at that end of the market, no. is there? No, there isn't. Um, so if I couldn't find something secondhand, I would definitely buy a Merida Reacto. And I think I would probably buy the one with uh, Shimano 105 that you tested because I think that is just incredible value. And, uh, and I think Shimano 105 is excellent. And if I had any change, which I think I, I think I would do. Yeah, it's 2,250, might... that, that model. Yeah, so I might squirrel that away until I saved up you know, another 250, 500 pounds to buy some fancy wheels for it. Because I think that, yeah, I think that that bike's an absolute bargain. The one I tested was basically essentially the same, but had Altegra. And I don't think you're missing much between 105 and Altegra for me. So yeah, it'd be a Merida Reacto. I'm such a man of the people. Um, (laughs) That seems like an excellent place to leave it. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Um, Read Simon's excellent, very detailed reviews of the aero bikes that he's been testing because they are very in-depth. Simon loves the details. Thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com.